0: Welcome to League One Fun. We're brought to you by the Beautiful Game Network and presented by Roughneck Scarves. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ira Jersey. It's another show from the United Soccer Coaches Convention, our off-the-pitch special, talking scouting with the soccer syndicate Scott Rosendez. then serial soccer team founder Peter Wilt joins me, and finally, players agent Dan Tavares talks about representing players in USL League One. Just a warning in the audio from Dan unfortunately has a lot of background noise. It was very busy and crowded where we were doing the interviews at that moment. So my apologies both to Dan and to the listener, but I included it here anyway because we talk about some really interesting facets of the insides of player signings. With that, here's me speaking with these 3. Welcome back to League One Fun from the United Soccer Coaches Convention. I'm here with Scott Resendez. He is the head of the soccer syndicate. But before we get to that, Scott, we met it last year at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. Um, At the time, there was no such thing as USL League One. Mm -hmm. Now we have USL League One. The soccer pyramid's built out. But before... The pyramid was built out. You were very involved in soccer. Can you tell us a little bit about your pathway to get to you know where you are now with uh, the soccer syndicate?
1: Sure. So I began back in uh working for the MLS Players Association. Uh, was the first employee there. Worked there for uh, multiple years. Um, supporting the players in a variety of different capacities, mostly uh, as the league liaison for player contracts and negotiations, uh, working with agents and the players uh, individually to prepare them uh, for their individual negotiations with the league. Uh, From that experience, my dream, passion, goal was always to work on club side um, as an executive, uh, as a technical director, GM, however you want to describe it, Uh, I've been able to do that twice. Uh, first with the with the now defunct Wilmington Hammerheads, rest in peace, um, and hopefully, if uh, future USL League One uh, side, uh, and and most recently the Oklahoma City Energy. So through those two experiences, uh, as a technical director, I've had great experiences and good success. Uh, but in those in experiencing uh, my work there, realizing that most clubs, especially at the lower division, but even in MLS don't have the resources or the the networks to truly scout domestically uh, as well as as should be done to, to have success in the pro game um, and so that is where the the idea and the the vision of soccer syndic came from uh, I had great relationships with a lot of independent Scouts throughout the country guys who I would met along the way on the road um, that were looking and hungry for that type of opportunity so linking those gentlemen together um, and ladies for that matter um, uh, into one cohesive network of scouts uh, that could then source information that we could provide to clubs in their best uh, t- to utilize and fit their needs um, is
0: the goal and, and what we achieve we strive to do and of course one of your your partner is a former MLS scout actually yes is that right yeah,
1: yeah so so my partner Matt Martin has uh, done done scouting for multiple clubs uh, in MLS uh, myself included uh, you know we met uh, scouting, we work together with Sporting Kansas City for many years, uh, and and I think the the experience of the two of us uh, linked together have, have really kind of uh, crystallized what our
0: company you know strives to be and 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 hopes to achieve. Right. So, you know, right now, where do you scout? Do you scout youth? Do you scout college game for you know hopefully people moving on into USL Championship and League One? You know where where, where what. I guess, universe do you scout players in right now?
1: Yeah. So we scout, um, as young as u 13, u 14, all the way up to USL championship. Um, that's our sweet spot right now. Uh, Obviously the younger players are becoming more and more attractive, both here domestically and, uh, abroad. And so identifying players sooner, uh, and early in their development pathway and tracking them all the way through that development pyramid, uh, gives us a really full picture of these players and kind of their trials and tribulations as you know their highs their lows so that when you know when we need to give an analysis on a player as a pro coming out of college from the lower divisions we have a really thorough background of their experience uh, so that we can speak very very intelligently on those players.
0: So let's talk a little bit about scouting itself. So, you know, we when we think about scouting, we think about the four pillars that we do as coaches as well. We think about the, you know, the, the technical, tactical, physical, and, and mental or psychological aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times you can see three of those on the field, but sometimes that mental, psychological one you can't. So how is there interaction with with coaches when you uh, you know start to build up that player profile or is that something that you know you, you wait for you know maybe the first contact when you say okay this person fits this playing style but we don't know how they are in the locker room or something sure. like that
1: so you know watching a player one and even two to three matches you'll go a complete game and not truly have a full picture in any of the four pillars many times um, it can be a result of them not seeing the ball enough uh the competition not really up to the challenge to to really bring out some components of their game um you know i would agree with you that mentality and 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 that um who they are as people is probably the most difficult to judge um, in a short amount of time, um, and so our scouting is, you know, we build that and amass our information through a variety of different experiences, not only watching them play, but also communicating with coaches, with with past, uh, with people um, in their history, and so at that granular level, you're really talking about the elite, I mean... At, in this early stage of our company 18 months in um we're really not at a place where we can do that for every player but you're really getting down to the the elites where we dig in at that that level to truly
0: have a full picture of who they are right so let's bring in usl league one obviously we just had you know their first season they had 10 teams now they're going to have you know Three expansion teams, but one dropped out. So now we have 12 teams coming Mm in. Uh, Describe how the syndicate, uh, you know, would scout USL League One for a championship or MLS team, firstly, and then what kinds of services would you offer USL League One teams in trying to scout players for their for their own sides?
1: Yeah. So when I came up with the Soccer Syndicate, USL was really the vision in which my lens in which I saw our company grow, in the sense that. As a USL technical director, I I didn't have support. It was myself doing most of the scouting, our assistant coaches would help out where they could. Um, I was blessed in that I had a lot of independent scout relationships in the game that I could lean on, people I trusted, that I could ask about real opinions on players they had seen live. Um, So I was blessed in that situation where I think a lot of my counterparts didn't really have as many of the resources I had available to me. So I know how valuable that stuff is and just the the growth of the lower divisions in the last five to six years have been, has been insane. I mean, we're talking more than double the amount of clubs that now exist that did back in 2012 when I was in Wilmington. Um, so there's been massive growth, more player needs, uh, even as MLS grows as well, the player pool is being stretched. You're having to look farther, far and wider to find players to, to fill your club um, and so We provide a service in which we help clubs expand their reach and and expand their viewpoint on the player pool as a whole, where you can compare a player from San Diego to a player in Hartford to a player in Birmingham, so to speak, um, and really be able to put those three guys next to each other and say, this is the best one for our needs, this is the second best and so on and so forth.
0: So one of the things that we've noticed in USL League One is that, you know, they're in communities that sometimes, you know, don't get scouted and Mm -hmm. that there's there's players like there's more diamonds in the rough maybe than... You know, was was originally thought. So when I think about guys like Connor Antley, who, you know, everyone everyone who's ever listened to this show knows that Connor Antley was one of my favorite players, mm-hmm. if not my favorite player, in League One last year. So he goes from South Georgia Tormenta, from their PDL team, goes to their first team, plays a season in their first team, and was the very first player that we know of who was traded for money to Indy Eleven um for you know for a monetary gain now it was only a couple thousand dollars but nonetheless it was less it was greater than zero right um do you think that we'll see significantly more because that seemed to have opened a floodgate and you know is is how much more importance the scouting take on when there's you know potentially money deals to be made between players getting uh getting transferred within the united states whether it's you know within the um within the usl championship from league one or or you know maybe even potentially mls one day
1: yeah so i think you've seen a massive shift at all levels here domestically mls USL. I mean, we can even expand it to the Canadian Premier League, where the market for players and turning the player, your player pool, into a revenue stream for a club um, is now finally being realized. And I would completely agree with you. I think, from a USL perspective, we've seen a trickle over the years of players leaving for cash cash deals on the outbound to you know, a a pretty steady stream of players leaving now and and being sold on to to a higher level, which is great. Um, And I do think you're going to see clubs invest in that now, which I think it can only benefit my company and scouting as a whole in this country, um, because the smarter you are at identifying, you can now realize a financial profit on, you know, from a player that you acquire. And so being smarter and more plugged in holistically for a country this size and when you tie in Canada to the whole thing just a massive massive amount of territory to cover the the smarter and, and the farther you can reach in terms of your identification pool and, and just understanding the market I think the
0: better clubs are going to be so this I'm going to ask you to speculate and give some opinion now more than anything else yeah. but It also seems to me that the structure of some clubs matters a lot, so one of the things that we've seen over the past couple of weeks is um, the Real Monarchs taking a couple of players, again, four-money deals. From uh, just today, as we're recording, um, Christopher Bermudez went from Greenville Triumph mm-hmm. to Real Monarchs, and we had Joe Gallardo from Richmond Kickers go to the Real Monarchs. Which the Real Monarchs are an MLS2 team yep. in the USL Championship. So these players are going up a level to the championship, but they might have MLS aspirations as well. So. It, you know, it, is, is that something that you think that MLS teams should strive for? Because it seems like RSL might be making an interesting model here for, um, for the way that MLS clubs might operate, which means that maybe that gives you an opportunity to work both for their championship teams as well as their MLS teams.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, It's interesting. I, I would agree with that. I think every club is different in how they kind of envision their roster being built, where their, their, their identification kind of target zones are. Um, you know, every club inter- from an international perspective has relationships all over the place. Domestically, you know, some clubs' academies are stronger and they lean on that more heavily. Where other clubs, maybe their market isn't as rich in talent, and so they're forced to think outside the box in terms of how they catch up. Um, you know, Salt Lake is one of the smaller markets in MLS, and, and therefore probably has to be a little bit more creative in terms of how they identify
0: talent. Yeah, for yet all they the won the USL levels. championship this year.
1: No question, <laughs> but but. Well, they had a handful of players who were academy-based players on that team, I don't believe any of those players were from Salt Lake proper. Um, they were identified outside of marketing and brought into their academy, That's which, which yep. works just as well. I mean, there's no shame in that. Um, it's, I think when you run a club, it's beholden upon you, the leader of that club, to realize these are our strengths, and these are our weaknesses, and how do we do our best to mask over those weaknesses to, to make us the strongest club we can possibly be? And I think, uh, you know, Dan and, and previous uh, staff there in, at Real Monarchs um, is smart to really recognize what is, uh, you know, what's important and, and what to lean on to really build the best team there.
0: So if Major League Soccer gets rid of its territorial rights, does Mm -hmm. that, I I take it that that's a good thing for the soccer syndicate. It just opens up. 100%. Yeah. And so so can you explain why, you know, maybe can you talk a little bit about the territorial rights as you know them and then how that helps the soccer syndicate in particular?
1: Yeah. So territorial rights, as of right now, MLS clubs have a 75-mile radius around their club uh, in which there is... Um, they have protected rights on players that live within that, that radius. Um, obviously LA, New York, that have multiple clubs. There's, a, there's some unique perspectives that we don't need to get into there with overlapping territories. But ultimately, um, you know, these clubs have rights to those players within that window. Um, as these territory rights diminish, um, potentially down to zero, maybe much smaller territory rights than 75 miles, um, that opens up the player pool to move far more freely throughout the country to join a club, an academy that fits their, their needs and their abilities better. And there's a couple of reasons why that's important. Um, and it's, it's not always about a club prioritizing one player over another or not identifying a player properly. There's a lot of different unique aspects that can affect a player from not being in the best situation for them based off of where they were born or where they live. Um, you know, some markets are flush with talent, and the fifth best option in, in a large market just may be drowned out by, frankly, better players than them. Where if they were to move to a different territory and have the freedom to do so, they would immediately step into a situation that is far better and, and provide them more playing time. Additionally, you could be a player that is phenomenally talented, but you don't fit the system that the club is trying to play, and so your skills, your your um, your talent set doesn't work in that system and therefore they don't prioritize you as a player that should play in their academy and, and through their system, having the freedom to move to another club that, that does play a system that fits your style gives that ability for you to rise and, and have those opportunities that might be missed out from just just frankly where you grew up and, and for no other reason than that.
0: Would, would getting rid of the homegrown territories or like you said significantly reduce them and personally I think they should get rid of them and the only ones they should have are the players who played in their academy quite frankly because those are the players they developed right <laughs> so that makes sense but um you know do you think that that will lead to the rise of more residency programs within academies whether it's championship teams or you know any professional club that might create a residency because i know like san antonio has a residency and obviously a number of mls teams have residency programs mm-hmm. as well will that probably increase the number of residency programs do you think around the country i would think so um listen a residency is a uh is a big bite to chew it's an expense you know, it's, yeah, it's expense
1: sure. but there's there's a lot of risk in residency let's put the playing component aside you're taking young kids out of their markets and bring them to a community in which they don't have a lot of resources so you're you're supporting them as a player you're supporting them as a young man trying to be educated um, and to grow as a human being to be able to live in society and there's expense on all three of those sides uh, you know fi- not only knowing that your academy is going to develop them as a player but where are they going to be educated who's going to do that work How, when they're not on the field, they're not in school how are they living, how are they behaving, who are their role models to make sure that that development as people continues to grow the right way it's it's a massive component to bite off and so while I do think it's going to grow there's a lot of challenges with going that direction uh, and you have to be fully committed to do it um, to do it right and to find results. So I think with all of that, if all of that's not in line, um, it's a great idea in theory, it may fall flat in terms of practice.
0: Anything that I didn't ask you, Scott, that you'd like to share with our listeners? So one thing I wanted
1: to say is, uh, you know, Chris, Christopher Bermudez is a is a funny one for me. Um, I was at the Alianza event in which he was identified. Um, and looking back, I was actually i um, proud of myself that I had identified him as one of the top players out of that event. Um, and to see him come back from his uh, stint in Mexico and to Greenville last year, he was a player that I had identified personally as one that I thought could make that jump. And so when I saw today that he went to Monarchs, um, I was, I was proud of his growth and, and to see how, he was, how far he's come. And again, it's about that pathway and finding a player early, following them along that path and then striking when the moment's right um to
0: bring them into a side and watching that development and he nearly had the go-ahead goal in the usl league one final against north texas had he shot low instead of high he, yeah. you know it's very possible greenville would be our champions scott from the soccer syndicate thanks very much for coming on league one fun ira thanks so much for having me welcome back to league one fun i'm here at the united soccer coaches convention talking
2: to serial soccer team starter Peter Wiltz. Peter. Oh, I thought thanks. you said serious soccer. starter. I got my serious face on for a second. Yes, yeah, serial yeah, and not murderer yet. The day is young, but, yeah, serial uh, yeah, well, soccer well, starter. So, so you've, you've
0: started at least three very successful franchises, right? Seven, yeah.
2: although well, we have that adjective of successful. Right. So let's now <laughs> count backwards. I'd say six of the seven are, are, are successful. Okay. They're F- all fair so, operational.
0: So, so, so remind me what all of those were oh, because gosh. I can only think the of three. The startups
2: but- were um, in Chicago. There's four of them, uh, Chicago Fire, Chicago Red Stars. Um, oh, right, Chicago the Chicago riot, you were which is the unsuccessful one. Although I would characterize it as successful because it was league owned and we got through the year, which was our mission. Uh, the fourth one in Chicago, I actually didn't start. I took over after two years as Chicago Power, so we're still at three. Um, India Eleven, Forward Madison. Green Bay Voyagers uh, last year in USL League Two, and then people sometimes don't give me credit for Minnesota United, but I did lead them into their professional development as uh, Minnesota Thunder.
0: Right. Okay. So I I think it's fair to say that you're a legend in uh, US soccer circles in terms of, you know, so many teams and so much soccer is related to you. But, you know, since we are League One Fun Let's talk a little bit about Forward Madison, and you know, you know, you're obviously this is your third time on our show, and I really appreciate that. He's grabbing his scarf; he has his Forward Madison scarf. Oh, well, this isn't well video. Soccer. Yeah, no, this <laughs> this is a not a vodcast. This is a podcast.
2: So, Peter, the Cooligans down the way here are a vodcast, by the way. Yeah, I'm just saying, they, if you want they, to keep up with the Cooligans, yeah, the, the Cooligans do both. Yeah, I, I, I,
0: well, well hence I, is, the is name, that a good cool thing? I think that's a, it, well, yeah. I don't know if we want to keep up with the cooligans. You know, we, we we don't have an explicit tag on our show, so that's uh, th- th- that's one of the reasons why we don't want to be associated with them all the time. But so, so, my question to you is, you know, when when you started in this business, like starting with with Major League Soccer back in the late 90s, um, you've we've now progressed to having multiple leagues. You you are interesting because you've basically started a team in every league level I'm of the... I'm very fortunate I have,
2: and actually I started in professional soccer a decade before my Chicago Fire experience. I started with the Milwaukee Wave, the oldest continuously operated professional soccer franchise in the uh, United States. The, the team that plays a block away from here, or played a block away from here, the Baltimore Blast, sometimes their fans claim to be the oldest continuously operated pro soccer team in America. But the truth is, for a couple of years, they stopped operating as the Blast and got new ownership and they changed the name to Spirit. So, right. they they don't count. It's the so, Milwaukee Wave. Not that I'm biased, but uh, so yeah. In 1987, when I started, what was the question again, Iris? <laughs> basically, was I was going to
0: ask about you know what what do you think makes a successful franchise? Oh, two things. Yeah, it's pretty simple. What specifically do you do? It's,
2: it's two things. It's hire good people is one. Um, talented, hardworking. A good character, that communicate well. So that's one really important thing. Uh, the other thing is successfully connect with the community. Uh, community engagement, not just a soccer community, although that's really critical, uh, but all aspects, uh, social organizations, nonprofits, uh, businesses, um, government agencies, being part of the the broad spectrum of everything that makes a community a community, so that they get a sense of ownership in this team, so that they feel like promoting the team is promoting themselves. If you can do those two things, it's likely the team will be successful. The third one I would throw in there is um, the venue, uh, and you can get more specific about it: the location of the venue, the amenities of the venue. Uh, the size of the venue, that sort of thing. But those first two things are much more important, having good people uh, running the team and then uh, really getting those community engagements so that there's a sense of ownership by the community at large. Because when, you know, soccer, well, I guess all sports, but really soccer around the world is a tribal sport where the fans are relating to the athletes on the field and to the identity of the team. If the more the fans relate to the team, the more passionate they'll be, and the more vested they'll be in the team.
0: So, how do you? So, so what's the first thing when when you're when you're starting? You know, thinking about forward forward Madison and the owners either come to you or you went to the owners and said, "I think this is a great opportunity for USL League One." What's the first thing that that a team should do in order to get into the community? And and we've seen some of this within USL League One recently with like mm. Union Omaha seems to be doing a pretty good job. But it's
2: meeting you know, with representatives of the community, both uh, in person and virtually, asking them questions, uh, essentially their opinions about the team and how it should be built, how well, it should well, be branded, the is, how do you identify and who then those, listen.
0: How how do you identify who those people are I guess that's one of the well
2: there's a a couple things there's a an old school thing called a phone book Um, you know kids (laughs) nowadays they use something called the interweb and um, you can find most of the contacts that way if you want to do it in person certainly going down to your neighborhood soccer bar on Saturday mornings, uh, you'll be able to identify a number of those that are passionate and connected to the sport. Uh, but just uh, reaching out—it's—it's um, I mean, it's, some of it is old school. It's—it's it's making uh, speeches, speaking engagements to Kiwanis clubs and. Oddfellows? Do the Oddfellows still exist? Uh, they do in some areas. Yeah, I. I the I, Grangers. I, I remember Oddfellows. What yeah. other for? The foresters. Ro- 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 Rotary club. So Rotary club for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but meeting with people one on one, one on four, town halls, speaking engagements with uh, hundreds and hundreds of people in the chamber, um, sitting down, youth soccer club leaders, uh, asking them their opinion. They want to be heard. A, people love talking about themselves. You know, Listen to me. <laughs> uh, and they respect if they are asked about their opinion of, of it. And then listen. And then ask more questions and listen some more. And then give them information about what you're thinking or what the team's direction is. And then ask their opinion of that direction. And incorporate their opinion collectively. You, you obviously can't... Do everything everyone says because some of it is conflicting. Uh, but really, bring them in under the uh, the tent. Sometimes it's a circus tent, as I think Forward Madison kind of was. Sometimes it's a more serious tent. But in any regards, make them part of the process. Right. Uh, so at the end of last year, you know, Forward Madison
0: had a pretty successful season. Made the uh, made the playoffs. Unfortunately, didn't didn't advance to the final but uh you know I, I would say by all accounts given the community engagement how many oh not making it to the final have...
2: was part of the plan you don't want to be too successful <laughs> in the first year otherwise it's really hard to hit that standard I mean, the I mean, year. I mean that ask... was a big mistake i made in chicago with a fire we won the double in our expansion year what do you do after that, that was a total right. failure you eventually yeah. well, got you, fired you, seven you, years you later have, you
0: could have won the international cup or whatever it was called back then i suppose that would have been uh the, triple. Been one thing. the, the triple. triple, yeah exactly um, but uh, so so you you so left Forward Madison, you're now working with United Soccer Leagues in a uh, capacity of helping build teams, right? Is that is Mostly, that your yeah. Mostly role?
2: it's working with new markets, and there's plenty of them, uh, in, in getting their supporters' culture developed, uh, facilitating conversations between soccer fans in a community and um, ownership groups and staff uh, for these markets where there's teams in various stages, whether it's Omaha – which is going to be kicking soccer balls for real in a couple months, or Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where it's a little more than an idea uh, but still has a long way to go uh, to become reality. Uh, Also helping out some of the existing teams throughout the championship, uh, USL League 1 and actually USL League 2 a little bit as well. And... um, um, again, facilitating conversation uh, between ownership, staff, and fans.
0: So let's talk about the, the supporters culture, because I know you're here talking to the Independent Supporters Council. You've been in some, some meetings with them. Uh, they, they always have their uh, annual meeting uh, around the United Soccer Coaches Convention. Talk a little bit about, you know.
2: It's a brilliant it, idea, isn't it? A, a, like, a, a soccer organization having meetings around the biggest soccer Conference convention in the country, you know, it's an idea. You would think maybe, maybe the first division te- uh, league in this country would <laughs> would glom onto and say, "Hey, that's a good idea. We should send representatives from all of our teams in our league office and be where the greatest the, confluence where, where, of where soccer influencers is, so are." Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, why would they want to interact yeah. with the? the uh, influencers of their sport in this country. So, so uh, but my question, more specifically
0: related to the ISC, is um, you know, th- there's there's a number of. Uh, of teams with supporters groups in USL League One that are members of the supporter of the ISC. There's others that aren't. So you mentioned that you're helping USL League One teams with their uh, their, their supporters groups. Um, you know, are you, is one of the things that you're trying to do is to get them involved with the ISC for best practices and, you know, building up those, uh, th- those supporters groups? Because I know only, I think at the moment, uh, there's only two supporters groups from USL League One that are part of... Um, yeah, I don't know the exact number. I,
2: I, I talked um, last night with the membership director for the ISC about that, and I told him I would uh, track down contact info for uh, uh, supporters groups, both of existing teams and newbie teams, and connect them with him so they can get more USL teams, supporter groups, part of this. The uh, percentage of championship teams involved went up quite a bit this year. So I know there's been progress made on that front. So Peter, thank you
0: very much for your time. I know you have to get to an ISC meeting in, in the very near future. If there are supporters who are listening to this show who are part of a, a USL League One team that might not be a member, is there a way to, for them to get in touch with you?
2: No. No, not no, at all. I, I really try to stay out of the. the I'm very <laughs> unapproachable. Uh, I, I, or perhaps on Twitter at Peter Wilt One. Um, that's Peter Wilt One on Twitter. It's the number one, not O N E. Ah, just yeah, yeah gotcha. Yeah. It's it's just like that's a fake one account. Finance. The O N E one is a fake account. That's not me.
0: <laughs> Fair enough, Peter. Great thank being here, Ira. Thank thanks thanks you very so much, much for having it. me on. You bet. Bye. Welcome back to League One Fun, still here at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. I'm here with Dan Tavares. He's a players agent for players in, in USL Championship and USL League One. So, Dan, thanks very much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you for having me, Ira. Uh, I, I love the show, and welcome to snowy
0: Baltimore. <laughs> yes, it just started to snow outside, so uh, Phil Grooms, my, uh, my my colleague doing the USL Uh, championship show and the usl show he is worried about uh, his flight leaving tonight so yeah so talk to me about you know what made you want to get into representing players in uh in soccer
3: yeah well uh, for me it probably started in high school um uh, my father's from portugal so i grew up playing the game Uh, the game has been part of my life my entire life but then I got into high school, shout out to, to Matha Catholic High School here in Maryland, uh, and started playing with players who are really good. And I realized I'm not as good as these guys, um, but I wanted to be involved in the game. So I knew then I still wanted to do something, but I wasn't going to focus playing in college. Uh, I was a business and sports management major, and, uh, and then went to law school. And when I finished, um, <laughs> I wanted to start getting back into it again, and it just kind of grown organically uh, since then, about four years ago.
0: So, how do you find players to represent? Is it yeah. is it your own scouting, or is it people that you that, you know? That that you know? Is it all word of mouth? Like like what's the process of kind of getting clients? Well,
3: I like to think I have a good eye, but I can't pretend to be a scout. Um, uh, every you know, one of the interesting things is you know, that I've learned is every coach is different. Everybody sees a player differently. So um, I try not to put my influence um, on on the coaches. Uh, uh, how it started for me was uh, my name was on the registry, the U.S. Soccer registry agent list, um, and players started contacting me. Um, So it's really just kind of grown organically since then. I don't have to, at this point, I don't have to do much scouting. Um, A lot of my players come from uh, other players that I'm already working with, Um, coaches, uh, scouts they have reached out to me. I've done a good job for someone else I've worked with, and um, and it's just gone from there.
0: And so what's your background and your day job? So, you know, you mentioned that you took a test in the building where we are right now, so I imagine that you have another career that's maybe tangential to uh, to your player-agent uh, responsibilities.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, I took the... So I'm, I'm used to this building because I took the bar exam right here in this building. That, so it gives me flashbacks. I don't like reading <laughs> I, I'm, I work as an elder law attorney, elder and disability rights attorney. That's my that's my day job. Um, that's what pays the bills. Um, like a lot of League One players, um, I well, you asked me what made me want to get into the agent business. But it wasn't for the money. I'm not. <laughs> uh, a lot of players, uh, you know, they're not making a lot of money. They're not making life changing money at the League One level. Uh, but they're doing it because they're passionate about it. Uh, and I do, and I'm in that same boat. Uh, I'm passionate about this it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I love making connections and, and working with these players. They need I found that a lot of guys are uh, need help
0: um, and ne- uh, need help in, in terms of negotiating contracts or you know what, what when you say
3: yeah. need help what does that mean? Um, well one finding jobs finding uh, because this is a big country. Um, scouting, and this is probably one of the things I talk about here at this convention, is Scouting is a challenge, um, so sometimes bringing the players to the coaches, the scouts, um, is needed. Um, so that's one. The other is to help supplement income. Um, like, as I said, guys aren't making a lot of money, they're doing this because they love this game, uh, and they may need some help uh, along the way finding other, other jobs, other sources of revenue, until they get an MLS contract. I've, I saw that, I saw that as a need, um, and I just want to be able to, that's what I can.
0: Oh, Talk to us a little bit about the negotiation process. So let's say that, you know, you, you, uh, you contact, I guess, a, a general manager or a coach. The coach, you know, uses Insat or Scout or one of the platforms and says, you know, I, I think I might be interested in this guy. Maybe, maybe he or she has reached out to, you know, they're, they're a former coach or some former players, or maybe there's a player on their team that says, yeah, he's, you know, pretty solid. He'll make a good depth option or, or he would make a good, uh, you know, potentially starter if he works hard or, or whatever. So, so they do all their due diligence. Then they call you and say, um, "You know, we're interested in you know in Joe Schmo. Yeah, um, what? Uh, what? What's then the usually the first response? Do they come with a, a first proposal, or you know, what, what's the negotiation yeah. process like?"
3: Well, every every, and this you know keeps me on my toes. Everybody's different. So, um, for instance, I was I recently had a player sign. And that club had, I mean, we had to go through five or six different people to sign off on this signing. Um, And then you can work with another club, it's just one, one guy. Uh, and, and it all depends on their style. Most of the time that next step is, we either want to see him in person, let's get him out here for a trial, um, or if they've seen enough of him, perhaps you know, a guy who's already been in the league, league one or championship level, they've seen enough of him, um, they may just offer him a contract like that. Uh, it all depends on where they are in, 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 their, in their process, where the club is in their process of uh,
0: signing players. So and so, so, what what are the negotiating points that, that you have? So obviously, there's you know the big one's always going to be money, right? Like what's yeah. the what, what's the salary? Is it a living wage or is it within the context of other players of the same quality? Um, but what other kind of addendums usually do either the players or the or the teams ask for? Yeah,
3: well, housing's probably the especially at uh, League One. Uh, so, yeah, housing, food, um, what kind of bonus structure there may be. Some clubs are all for um, personal bonuses, goals, so, uh, etc. But I'm starting to see a lot more team goals. Uh, so wins within a bonus, um, uh, just being in the team, uh, so.
0: Uh, so so being, being in the team, you, so, so it's more that it's more, you know, getting a, an appearance bonus, right? So is that pretty typical? Um, so, you, you know, just for historical context and just for me to nerd out here yeah. for a second no, and, and prove that I've read way too much stuff on this. Um, you know, back when, when players first, when, when soccer first professionalized back in the late 1800s, um, you were only paid if you got on the field. Yeah. And that's why people were paid a weekly wage. Right, because, you, yeah, that's where the weekly wage stuff started. So, you know, they would be paid, you know, 50 pence or whatever uh, to if they made it onto the pitch for Aston Villa back in 1888, right? That was uh, kind of where that all came from. And, you know, so your starting 11 would change, and there were no substitutes. So it's either you played and got paid or you didn't. Um so, uh, so, so so it's interesting that they still have the appearance bonuses kind of thing, too.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Anything that we can do to help... Uh, I actually recently started seeing um, health insurance offering to pay for a percentage of all of uh, health insurance, and that's, um, that's really helpful with so I I'm, I know that there's a uh, a Ute Players Union now uh, for the championship level. So those things are all kind of growing and building, and it's, it's great for the game, great for new players, uh, and it'll help them progress. So presumably, offering things like health insurance
0: in, in a backhanded way—that might be some of the owners saying, "Look, you don't necessarily need to unionize right away." And because presumably, one of the things like for the championship PA that they're going to ask for is everyone gets health insurance, right? right. That so that, MVP. yeah, I'm, I'm sure it, it probably is as these negotiations progress. But um, you know, and, and again, I'm going to ask you to speculate here, and I don't want to get in trouble with any of the the owners or, or anything. But but you know, how do you picture? the league progressing like like you know eventually presumably if the championship has a players association then eventually league one will too um but but you know do you do, you know do you foresee any significant uh you know problems with having a a, a you know, kind of a, a contract i would imagine it might make your job a little bit easier you know what the minimum that they're going to offer is if
3: nothing else right um, I don't see any problems, There, to me there are no problems with having a strong player team, um, they're out there to, to help, so uh, that can only be, be good, in my opinion, <laughs> um, uh, but I do see the league growing quite a bit, I mean, you're already seeing... We just saw a list past week. Uh, USL championship players being transferred to MLS teams for six figures. Uh, that's kind of unheard of, uh, even just a couple of years ago. And now, USL League One players are being transferred to championship level teams. Uh, I think that's that's what you're gonna see first. Um, we've seen a handful of that already. And I think we're gonna see a lot more of that coming, coming up in years to come, because there really isn't a huge difference uh, for a lot of the uh, the level of play from the League One teams uh, versus probably uh, most of the championship levels. I mean, there are some of the great ones out there. Um, but they can compete, so uh, you know, let's give them all a shot.
0: So, in, you know, this is something that we've talked about quite a lot in the show, is yeah. this ecosystem build, an economy building around players and player transfers, you know, with you know, the one-plus-one uh, options on uh, on player contracts, or maybe maybe now they will start to be some two-year contracts or something like that. What's the, um, you know, how, how do you think the movement is going to be? Because you, you mentioned, you know, USL League One to championship, but, you know, when, when a USL League One player moves to, say, the Real Monarchs, which we've had a couple do, yeah, so Chris Bermudez as well as Joe Gallardo, right? Chris Bermudez from Greenville Triumph and Joe Gallardo from the Richmond Kickers. Um, and and they move for money, right? We know that small figures, but nonetheless, money and sell on clauses, and presumably, also things like uh, if they get an MLS contract, maybe the you know League One team gets a little bit of money from from that. So. Um, do you think that's something, that's something that we're going to see more of and one of the advantages maybe of MLS2 teams being in both of these leagues? Yes, I do.
3: And I think that's critically important um, for the growth of not just those leagues, but the growth of soccer in this country. Um, that is a way to organically build this country. I mean, that money will go... I, I'm in Maryland, right? So I go down to Richmond, I have players with Richmond, uh, I go down at least once a year and um, that money will help build infrastructure with richmond and maybe help pay for another player help housing costs uh and uh, so i know that was a good deal for richmond it was a good deal for Monarchs. so it was a good deal for Um uh, so i i think that is the and, and that's really the best way I mean, we don't have to force things um we can just let it build organically just like that
0: yeah. Dan, thank you very much. You've been very generous with your time. How can people connect with you? Yeah, um, so
3: you can well, you can get a hold of me on Twitter, uh, Dan Tavares, 14, um, D-A-N-T-A-V-A-R-E-S, 15. Um, yeah, thanks. And, and do you have a website or anything for yeah, your... Well, yeah. it, uh, my, my email is Tavares,
0: T-A-V-A-R-E-S, agency, at gmail.com. Great, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Dan, thanks very much for coming on League One Fun. Thank you for listening. Jason can be found at Home Sweet Soccer on Twitter. I can be found at Ira Jersey, and you can connect with the show at League One Fun. That's League the Number One Fun. Thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier of Major League Soccer, United Soccer Leagues, and U.S. Soccer. Get your custom scarves for your group or team at RoughneckScarves.com. Until next time, hashtag Support Local Soccer.